0: Welcome to Ratbags and Roustabouts, the place where we tell those extraordinary stories of ordinary people who never made it to the history books, but who we should really be celebrating all the same. I'm your host, Marion Langford. my family, they would certainly be quick to say I can be a bit of a ratbag at times. Not sure about roustabout though. For those of you unsure exactly what that is, it's generally used to describe an unskilled or casual labourer. I guess you could call me unskilled as a podcaster. This is my first foray into the world of podcasting, and I thank you so much for joining me for the ride. I do, however, come from a long line of both roustabouts and ratbags, so in this series, I'll be tapping into some of those ancestors and other people I've come across who have just piqued my interest to bring you some of the hilarious, fascinating, tragic, heroic and disastrous tales that the history books have missed. Just to tell you a little bit about myself, I've been a journalist for more than 20 years, but I've always had quite the soft spot for history. So for a bit of fun a few years back, in my spare time I did the Diploma of Family History out of the University of Tasmania. If you're interested in ancestry or genealogy, I highly recommend it. I thought I knew a fair bit about my family tree, but during the course of those studies, I came across all kinds of weird and wonderful characters who I had known nothing about. And it got me thinking, you know... The history that gets recorded is filled with the A players, the monarchs, the politicians, the famous and the infamous. I think of these people as that popular group at high school who thought everyone and everything revolved around them. Everybody else were just supporting actors. But that's who my ancestors were. I'm not a great-grandchild of British nobility. There aren't statues or monuments dedicated to my ancestors. A lot of the time, there aren't even gravestones. It doesn't mean that they didn't do some pretty incredible things, though. So I reckon it's about time we turned things around and gave some of these supporting characters in our history the lead roles. That's what I hope to do here anyway. And to kick things off, I thought I'd start with one of the more tragic stories. This is the tale of a man called John Basham, my third great-granduncle, and is the epitome of wrong place, wrong time. You know the saying, bring a knife to a gunfight? Well, this poor bloke was killed by a knife in a gunfight. For this story, we are heading back to March 1825 in Van Diemen's Land. Of course, that's now known as Tasmania, the southernmost state of Australia. Our story takes place just north of Launceston, near Owella, overlooking the sparkling blue expanse of the Tamar River, At a place called Wilmore's Bluff where Basham's hut sat. These days the Tamar Valley and especially this spot around Rowella is wine country famous for what I must say are some very nice pinot noirs but back then the landscape was dominated not by grapevines but by sheep and blackwood trees. There are bush ranges bayonets and blood to come but first we need to go back and see how John Basham just 21 years old when he died, came to be in Van Diemen's land in the first place. John was born in London in 1803 to Xenophon and Sarah Basham. Xenophon was a butcher by trade and he and Sarah ended up with five children – four born in England and one surprise son who was born in Launceston in 1818 when Sarah was an impressive 49 years old. But before then, in 1811, things took a turn for the worse when Xenophon was found with a forged five pound banknote. Now, a bit of background here. The Napoleonic Wars at the beginning of the 19th century left the Bank of England short of gold. So for the first time, Banknotes were created for low denominations. One-pound and two-pound notes were first issued in 1797. But these were ripe for forgery, which of course had disastrous consequences for the British economy. So the crime of forgery was at that time punishable by death. Soon, though, they were executing so many people for it that a rethink was in order. So they changed the punishment so that prisoners could do a deal and plead guilty of being found in possession of a forged banknote. Instead of being sent to the gallows then, they were sent to New South Wales for 14 years. And that's exactly what happened to Xenophon in 1811. The records from the Old Bailey are very short and to the point. It just says... Xenophon Hearn Basham was indicted for that he, on the 1st of April, feloniously had in his custody and possession a certain forged banknote for the payment of £5, he knowing the same to be forged and counterfeit. To this indictment, the prisoner pleaded guilty, transported for 14 years. Xenophon was somewhere between 37 and 39 years old at the time, In his convict records, it describes him as five foot three and three quarters. I reckon we could just call him five foot four, with blue eyes and greying brown hair. I think we can add a bit about Xenophon's character here as well, because looking at his records, it's pretty clear he also had a distrust of authority and didn't mind bending a few rules here and there to help his family. The first time we see this is before he even left England. He was sent to a hulk in Portsmouth, called the Captivity, but within a few months he managed to escape, possibly going back home to Sarah and the kids or possibly just staying on the run. Now, this doesn't mean he was some master escape artist. At the time, the prisoners who were housed on the hulks as they awaited transportation were put to work. They did a lot of different jobs around the docks. So escaping was fairly easy and pretty common. That said, the courts weren't too pleased when it happened. So just five months after he was sent to the Hulks on October 31, 1811, Xenophon escaped. It took quite a while for the authorities to catch up with him. It was more than a year later, in December 1812, that they found him. And on January 13, 1813, he was back at the Old Bailey, this time sentenced to death. However, that sentence was commuted to life transportation, and finally in 1814, Xenophon sailed to Port Jackson, New South Wales, aboard the General Hewitt. For many convicts, a life sentence of transportation effectively ended their marriage, as it was expensive and difficult for spouses and children to follow those convicted out to Australia. But Sarah and the kids managed to get passage in 1816 on the Lord Melville. A ship that was transporting female convicts out to Port Jackson. Then in 1817, we see them set sail to Van Diemen's Land. It's unsure how this came about, but it was something that was both a blessing and a curse for the family. At this time, there was the assignment system where convicts were assigned as workers to free settlers. If a convict's family was in the colony, it was usual for them to be assigned to their spouse, so we can be fairly certain in assuming Xenophon had been assigned to Sarah during this period. The family got a land grant and settled near Launceston, and so we see John, grown up, looking after his flock of sheep along the banks of the Tamar in March 1825. This was a pretty wild era for Van Diemen's Land. The British had only established Launceston less than 20 years earlier in 1806 and Hobart was only two years older having been established in 1804. Convicts were treated particularly badly in those early years and many of them preferred to take their chances in the bush than in the chain gang so quite a few absconded turning to life as a bushranger. In 1824... George Arthur arrived as the new Governor just after Van Diemen's Land was declared a separate colony from New South Wales, and his focus was on establishing law and order among convicts and settlers alike, in a place where really those in charge, it could be argued, were more criminal in their actions than their prisoners. The same year though, the brutal treatment of convicts at Macquarie Harbour saw 13 prisoners escape into the bush led by a man called Matthew Brady. And really, for two years, until his eventual arrest and execution, we have this personal war between Governor Arthur and Brady, which inadvertently caught poor John Basham up in the crossfire. By most accounts, Matthew Brady was not a bad guy. He saw injustice and hypocrisy in the authority figures who governed the island, and refused to live under their rule anymore. But he also held his gang of bushrangers to a certain standard, and if they didn't abide by his rules, they were cast out. He was particularly strict about the treatment of women. At a time when women in the colony were routinely raped and assaulted without much regard, he wouldn't tolerate the ill treatment of women by any of his fellow outlaws. An example of this can be seen with his long standing hatred of another bushranger, Thomas Jeffreys. Jeffreys was colloquially known as the monster. He was a murderer, a cannibal, and a serial rapist. Jeffreys was originally in Brady's gang, but Brady cast him out over his fondness for assaulting women. As an aside, our poor Basham family was also indirectly involved in a later run-in with Jeffreys, which I'll discuss in a future podcast. I'll give you a bit more info on that at the end of this episode. But back to Brady and Governor Arthur. Brady hated Arthur, and Arthur hated Brady. The reward Arthur set for Brady's capture increased rapidly through this time, jumping from £10 to £50 after this disaster at Basham's hut. What's also interesting is that Governor Arthur added an extra incentive into the reward. Anyone giving information that would lead to Brady's capture would also receive their ticket of leave, essentially becoming a free man, which was a very tempting offer for a convict at that time. But I love how Brady answered this. He put up his own wanted poster for George Arthur with the wording... It has caused Matthew Brady much concern that such a person known as Sir George Arthur is at large. Twenty gallons of rum will be given to any person that will deliver his person unto me. And the general population loved Brady. His nickname was nothing like the Monster Jeffreys. Brady was known as the Gentleman Brady. When he was finally captured, people sent him fruit and flowers to his prison cell. However, all of this doesn't mean Brady wasn't committing crimes. He was an outlaw who got food and weapons and other provisions by robbing the free settlers. So sometime in late March, we have John Basham and his stockman, Joseph Hines, a former convict who had only been a free man for a month, on the Basham farm looking after the sheep. They look up and see Brady and another bushranger, James McCabe, coming towards them armed to the hilt. There's no one around, no one for miles, so Basham and Hines have no choice but to do what the bushrangers say. They hold them captive in Basham's hut for three days. Now, none of the reports mentioned this next detail, but I came across it in my research, Brady and McCade had another man with them. Convict Robert Pete was being kept prisoner by the pair and was also in that hut along with Basham and Hines. And he gave some unique detail about what transpired at Basham's hut in his statement afterwards. He said, They got there on the Monday at sundown, forced their way inside, telling their prisoners they would remain there until they saw the government boat, The Fame. They made Basham and his stockmen prepare a dinner of mutton and tea for them before they slept, the bushrangers on the floor with their feet against the door, the others in the bed. They remained at the hut all through Tuesday and Wednesday. During that time, Brady and McCabe took Basham's pistol and helped themselves to various other provisions. Meanwhile, the three men being held against their will couldn't do anything but either wait the bushrangers out and hoped they would leave soon or hope for an opportunity to escape. Obviously, of the three, Basham was the only one who hadn't been a convict. It's hard to know just how scared he would have been. We don't know what sort of man he was or what his experiences were up to this point. He was a free man who had come to Van Diemen's land as a child But his father was a convict, his brother-in-law was also a convict, and Xenophon hadn't been a model prisoner. As well as escaping from the Hulk in England, in his time as a convict, he had been given a hundred lashes for assault, he'd had to forfeit his ticket of leave for harbouring and encouraging bush ranging in 1822, and the year after John's death, he was in trouble again, this time with his son-in-law, Jonathan Ives, for allegedly stealing a steer. The pair were acquitted for want of proof, and I reckon Xenophon's butchering sills came in handy there to carve up the evidence and distribute it around the neighbourhood. That said, we have John who has never been in trouble with the law, who is a farmer and a free man, plus he's still very young. I think we can assume that he and Joseph and Robert were indeed being held under duress by Brady and McCabe for those days in the hut. But remember, George Arthur was desperate to capture Gentleman Brady, and he had all of the island's soldiers at his command. So under instruction from Captain Lockyer, the manhunt for Brady in the north of Van Diemen's land was on. So let's go to Thursday, March 31, 1825, at Basham's hut. It's early, between 6 and 7 a.m., The sun has only just risen, and the men are all still asleep in the hut. The three prisoners are in the bed, while Brady and McCabe are on the floor, their feet by the door. Suddenly they're woken by a knock. It's a group of three soldiers. According to an account in the Hobart Town Gazette, through the door they inquired if there were any bushrangers within – Inside the hut, McCabe orders Basham to answer no on pain of death. Joseph Hines gave his own account of this. He said, Between six and seven o'clock on Thursday morning, before any of us were up, someone knocked at the door and said, Is anyone here? Basham said, Who is there? One of the armed men said to him, Hold your noise or I will blow your brains out and put a pistol to his head. But Hines quickly realises the bushrangers are now occupied with readying their weapons. He uses the opportunity. He jumps up, crying out, for God's sake, let me out. Pete also begins shouting, I'm a pressed man. Brady and McCabe have their guns pointed at the door, but somehow Hines manages to get past them and fling the door open. And that's when it all kicks off. As Hines runs out through the door, the first shot is fired into the hut by one of the soldiers. He's shouting to the soldiers, Don't shoot me, I'm a stockkeeper. Meanwhile, Brady and McKay begin shooting back. The bushrangers have two double barreled guns, two single barreled pistols, a musket, plus Basham's pistol between them, and they manage to wound one of the soldiers. So now we have a full on gunfight. The stockman is clear of danger, but Basham and Pete are still inside the hut, caught fair and square in the middle of it all. The two men have a couple of choices. They can try to hide inside the hut, but that's where a lot of the soldiers' bullets are whizzing. Or they can follow Joseph's example and do the same, running out and shouting their innocence. And that's what they do. They run out of the hut completely unarmed. Pete gets clear without a problem. He looks back. Basham is shouting to the soldiers, don't shoot me, my name is Basham. But the bushrangers are shooting, the soldiers are shooting, one of them is wounded, a man is running out of the hut towards them and so one of the soldiers, who Robert Pete later named as John Butts, runs him through with his bayonet, through the chest just below his heart. Time stops. The quote from Pete's account here is tragic in its understatement. He says... Basham and I got out of the hut. As soon as I got out of the hut, I saw three soldiers. One of them, named John Butts, ran after John Basham and wounded him with his bayonet. Another soldier, named Samuel Brooks, cried out, That is John Basham. Butts said, Oh dear, I am sorry. Pete and Hines carry the wounded Basham to the stockyard, about 20 metres away. Meanwhile, the gunfight is still in progress. The soldiers should have had the advantage. Instead, it's just one problem after another. On top of having just stabbed one of the hostages, their weapons begin misfiring. One of them then smashes in the window so they can shoot through it, but their gun jams. Another tries to shoot twice through the door, but their musket misfires as well. So the soldiers take cover behind a tree about five metres away while they frantically try to fix their weapons. McCabe comes out of the hut firing. Butts manages to fire back, but when it comes to the actual bushranger, he misses his mark. Then Brady comes out, and despite their proximity and weaponry, the soldiers don't as much as graze the outlaws, who make their escape, disappearing into the bush. They don't pursue the bushrangers, and instead turn their attention to the wounded Basham. He's still alive at this point, but is losing blood, The quickest way to travel is on the river, so they get Basham to his boat, lift him on and sail him to Georgetown. But it's all in vain. Basham is mortally wounded and he dies in all likelihood in the boat on the sparkling Tamar River. A few strange things were reported in the aftermath of this tragic episode. In the Hobart Town Gazette on April 22, an editorial complained about the scant details provided by the coroner of the inquest into John Basham's death. And another letter to the editor in the Tasmanian and Port Dalrymple Advertiser talks about the body being left for four days before being examined, quote, at such a season and in such a climate as this. It goes on to say, The public mind has been much agitated, sir, on this subject, for independent of the coroner's attention or neglect in the holding of the inquest and the peculiarity of the circumstances under which Basham met his death, it seems that the brother-in-law of this unfortunate young man has been deprived of his ticket of leave, which he held and turned into government employ. That is referring to Jonathan Ives, who was a convict married to John Basham's sister Sarah. Various articles seem to hint that a closed inquest with a jury made up of people in the government and military's employ may be trying to cover up such an embarrassing situation as a soldier mistakenly killing a free settler instead of the bushranger that was such a prize and who slipped out of their grasp as a consequence. None of this can have looked good for Governor Arthur. Settlers already had bushrangers to be fearful of. Did they now also have to worry about soldiers attacking them, thinking they were bushrangers? Brady was captured a year later by John Batman, who is most famous for founding the city of Melbourne. Apparently, when Batman called on Brady to surrender, Brady asked him if he was an officer. I'm not a soldier, Batman replied. I'm John Batman, And if you raise that gun, I'll shoot. There's no chance for you. Brady then said back to him, My time's come, Mr. Batman. I surrender to you, but I'd never give in to a soldier. Brady was led to the gallows on May 4, 1826, as many of the onlookers openly wept for him. But for the Bashams, their grief and their tears were kept for John. Xenophon died just two years later at the age of 55. His death notice doesn't say how he died. John's sisters, Martha and Sarah, stayed in Tasmania, but his brothers, William and Samuel, moved to South Australia in the 1840s, where the Basham name is now synonymous with the Victor Harbour region there. Meanwhile, matriarch Sarah Basham who left her life in London to move her children to the other side of the world in order to follow her husband, outlived him by decades. If he thought it was impressive that she had her youngest child at the age of 49, she managed to live to the ripe old age of 99, passing away in Launceston in September 1868. Of course, before any of that, as I mentioned briefly earlier, The same year as John's death, the Bashams were indirectly involved in one of the most devastating and horrific bushranger attacks that ever occurred in Van Diemen's land. This one involved John's older brother, William Basham. William was married to Louisa Tibbs, who was sister to John Tibbs. John Tibbs, his wife Elizabeth and their baby son were to be abducted and put through all kinds of horrors, by the notorious bushranger and cannibal Thomas Jeffries. Thomas Jeffreys ended up being hanged beside Matthew Brady on that May day in 1826. And I will tell you that whole terrifying story next time on Ratbags and Roustabouts. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I'm Marion Langford. And make sure you join me again for more stories about those commoners muck, ratbags and roustabouts from our past who still have extraordinary tales to tell.